Who is in charge? You see, when you get a bunch of guys in particular together to move boxes and furniture out of a house, every single one of those guys knows precisely how to move that furniture and those boxes down the stairs. Every single one of them know exactly what to do, and unfortunately, every single one of their plans is different than the other person's. So you've got to put somebody in charge. You've got to pick one that'll be the foreman of sorts, that'll be the one, the point person that says, this is how it's going to get done. And yesterday, we had that person, a man by the name of Steve Mahoney came from Chafer Seminary, a friend of Pastor Arches, and he came and he said, this is how it's going to get done. And as a result of his leadership, all the men and women who had come that day subjected themselves, they submitted themselves to that leader for the common good. Because as I see some of these furniture pieces coming down and I see the different directions I'm getting from all the different men, it was very confusing. And at times, things almost dropped. But when we got one command, when we got one way to do it, one way to pack the truck... Things went smoothly. When we subjected ourselves to someone else, to their leadership, the common good was accomplished. You know, the, the, the term submission or subjection really has a lot of negative connotations, I think, in our culture today. When we hear the word submit to someone else, we react a little negatively, don't we? That's not something that's our natural tendency, our natural desire to want to do. But submission, submission or subjection, while often viewed as a negative aspect, is viewed as a positive in the Bible. When we hear the word submit, while our minds naturally think in terms of duty or obligation... The Word of God wants us to redefine that understanding and view it through a different lens than the lens of duty or obligation. Instead, as we're going to see in 1 Peter today, when we hear the word submit or be put into subjection to another, we are to look at this as an opportunity, not a duty. We are to look at this as a prospect for the common good not an obligation. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 2 and chapter 3 today, as we will read, wants us to recognize that submission or subjection is not merely something we do to others. It is something we do for others. It is something we do for the benefit of others. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. And as you're turning there, I want to briefly... Uh, settle in on where we are in our text today. We're going to start in verse 11. By the way, the title of my message is just that. Subject to others, for others. So I want us to keep that in mind. We are being subject to others, but not only that, we are submitting ourselves for the benefit of others. And we will see how that plays out in just a moment. But in our study today... We're going to start in verse 11 and we're going to come about to verse 17 and then we're going to skip over a section. And this was the same section that we spoke on on Easter. But as we jump to chapter 3, Peter's going to be continuing the same theme throughout. So we're not taking things out of context. Instead, we're actually seeing things within their context. 
from chapter 2, verse 11 to chapter 3, verse 7, Peter has the same theme in mind. So take a look in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to begin in verse 11, go to 17, and then chapter 3, 1 to 7. A little more text than usual today, but I think it's going to be very helpful as we study through it. So listen carefully. I want to read it all the way through, and then we will begin to take a look and, and study the Word of God here together. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 says this, Beloved, Peter says, I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors as to those who are sent by him, the king, for the punishment of evildoers, and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the King. Jump down to verse 1 of chapter 3. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives, when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed, calling Abraham, call, excuse me, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. Finally, verse 7, husbands, likewise, dwell with them with understanding giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. Will you join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, God, I ask Your special presence here among us right now. Father, we're opening up Your Word and we ask, Lord, that You would show us Your truth. I ask, Father, in particular, that You would help us to recognize a biblical understanding of being put into submission to another. Help us to recognize that it is for the common good, for benefit, that it is an opportunity, Lord, not merely to look at it as duty or obligation. Father, I pray that You would lead and guide this time in Your Word. May it transform our lives. In Jesus' name, Amen. Take a look again at verse 11 and 12. Peter says this, Beloved, I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, 
they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. You know, Peter here starts off likening his audience to sojourners and pilgrims. Um, Go back to chapter 1, verse 1, you'll see that that same uh, adjectives to describe the kind of people to whom Peter is writing. Why are they called sojourners and pilgrims? Well, Peter's audience are Gentile, non-Jewish, Christians who have come to faith in Jesus Christ. They They have been incorporated into the faith. They are learning about their Christian heritage now. And Peter, knowing full well that they have abandoned their former Roman ways and lifestyle of paganism and idolatry, knowing that they've abandoned that, he says, you are now like aliens and strangers in the land around you. You are like sojourners and pilgrims. People who are not accustomed to the land around you. People who are not accustomed to what is happening around you because you have a new life now. While they they once considered their former Roman lifestyle to be their natural way of life, they now considered it to be a foreign way of life. And so in like fashion knowing full well what they had dealt with in their former lives, Peter says, abstain from fleshly lusts. That is, their former physical, earthly lusts. He says, abstain from the things that you formerly did. These are things that war against your soul. That is to say, your very life. These are things that are going to keep you in battle. A battle between the flesh and the spirit. If you turn to Romans 7, you'll see Paul take this battle to its fullest extent. The war between the flesh and the spirit is a serious battle. But Peter says, but there's another battle going on. There's not just a battle in your heart taking place. There's a battle being waged among the people around you in Asia Minor. He says, you... Christians, you Gentile Christians of Asia Minor, not only are you dealing with inward spiritual conflict, but there is coming external conflict. And now is. There is existing persecution right now, he says, that you are facing. Notice the phrase, when they speak against you as evildoers. Peter brings this up because in that day and age, when they had converted to Christianity from pagan Rome, they were slandered. They were ridiculed. They were mocked. Verbal persecution and sometimes physical persecution. This was at the onset, I would say, of some of the more serious physical persecutions leading up to the time of Nero. We're in the early 60 A.D.s as this letter is being written. He says, you are being slandered by the audience around you. People are giving false accusations. If you look at chapter 4, verse 15, he gives an idea of what some of these false accusations might be. They include simple things like being a busybody, which doesn't sound all that bad, I suppose. But he goes on and says that they've been accused of stealing and of even murder. False accusations. Have you ever been falsely accused? That is a, uh, that's a helpless feeling, isn't it? I, you know, believe it or not, now I hesitate to share this. I was, uh, I was once falsely accused by the FBI. Yes, the FBI came to my door 
and they falsely accuse me of committing a crime uh, on a marine life animal in Sonoma County where I grew up. Now, you're all really wanting to hear the story, aren't you? Okay, I'll tell you. My buddy Chris, I, I've got to tell this story because this, this is the story I've been waiting. This is the illustration I've been waiting to give. And I finally found the right spot for it. Are you ready for it? When, when I was a teenager, I, my, my buddies and I, we weren't too bright. My buddy Brady's here, and, and he's bright now. But, uh, but nevertheless, back in high school, we were not all that bright. And uh, I had gone to my friend Chris's house, and I had kind of... We, you know, you toilet paper somebody's house, you know, you put toilet paper all over and you mess it up and you, you maybe you go in their room and mess it up a little bit. Well, I had messed around with his room and his home and he wanted to get me back. Well, my, my friend Chris is really not a, not a very bright guy at times. And he, he went all the way to, to the ocean. He was walking around thinking about what he could do. And believe it or not, on the beach, he found a sea lion that had washed up shore that was dead, a small sea lion, washed up on shore, lying in the sand. My friend, again, not being all that bright, got a great idea. He decided to get a bunch of towels. He picks up this sea lion and puts it in his car and drives 45 minutes inland to my home in Santa Rosa. You guys are all thinking, "What? you have a weird friend. Yes, I do, I do. He gets to my home. It's in the middle of the night. And him and a buddy picks up the sea lion and puts it on my car, knowing full well that I was going to school the very next day. I, I had a college class that I was attending uh, as, as a 19-year-old, I suppose. Puts, it, puts a dead sea lion on my car and drives home. I wake up in the morning. I get dressed, I shower, I get ready for the day. And I walk outside. And I look at my car. 45 minutes inland from the beach. And I start looking at this thing on my car and I'm like, what is that? And I, and I start walking around the car and I realize there is a deceased sea lion on my car. Now, I'm not too bright either at 19 years of age. I was late for class, so what do you think I did? I got in my car, I turned it on, I pulled out of the driveway, went down the street and made a hard right, and the sea lion fell out in the middle of the street and I went to college class because I, I was late for class. Well, what else was I going to do? Yes, 911, yes, there's a dead sea lion on my car. Please come get it. No. So I, I left it in the street and I'm thinking, yeah, that, that'll work. Nobody will know. <laughs> so I go to class. Meanwhile, the FBI gets a call from the neighbors. Yes, there's a, there's a dead horse in our, in our street or something. We don't know what it is. They come out. They find out that it's a, a dead sea mammal. Unbeknownst to me, the animal had been dropping blood. So the FBI agents start tracking the blood. And start, oh, there's 4028 Trinity Drive, my home. I'm not home. My mom is home. Knock on the door. Yes, ma'am. Uh, do you know anything about a dead sea lion uh, lying in the street? My mom says, no, no, sir. I don't know what you're talking about. But she begins to suspect, knowing, knowing my friend Chris, she knows that something terrible must be up. And sure enough, I get home and I see unmarked cars 
all around my, my, my residence. And I walk into the, the house, and I kid you not, they sat me down, and they absolutely grilled me. They were so furious, these FBI agents. They thought that I had killed this sea lion and dropped it in, in the gutter, if you will. And I was sitting there with a total paradox. On the one hand, I didn't want to turn my friend in because I knew that he would get in serious trouble. And on the other hand, I knew that I hadn't done anything. Well, I took a hard right, but I hadn't done all that much. I felt absolutely helpless. When you are falsely accused, you feel absolutely helpless. Now, the end of the story, I'll, I'll make it brief. Eventually, I, I went to, to, the, to the Taco Bell because I thought my phone was tapped. And I said, Chris, you got to get over here, man. They're looking for you. He eventually turned himself in. It was a misunderstanding. They recognized that he did not kill the animal. And although I believe it is a felony to remove a dead sea mammal, they let him go without a citation. Thank the Lord. There's my big sea lion story. <laughs> Falsely accused. I was terrified. I was shaking in my boots when the FBI showed up to my door and said, you killed this and that's a felony. I didn't know what to do. Friends, in 1 Peter chapter 2, they're being accused of murder. Murder at times. How much more so must they have been shaking in their boots, if you will? How much more so must they have been terrified of some of the people around them who were accusing them of these crimes? So what does Peter says? What does Peter say to do? What does he tell his audience to do in the face of false allegations? On the one hand, we might say he'd, he'd say, "Fight back." Tell them they're wrong. Call them liars. Validate your integrity. Prove that you're right. On the other hand, you might think, well, maybe Peter might say, just avoid them at all costs. Get out of the way. Be very passive. Don't fight back. Just live under the radar. Peter comes to somewhat of a hybrid of these two positions. Notice what Peter says at the onset of verse 12. He says, have your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. Have your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. Friends, it is here where I, can, I, it is here where I stop and think, if I'm Peter's audience hearing this, I'd be thinking, but what about them? What about my accusers? They've been calling me a thief and even a murderer at times. What do we do about them, Peter? How do I get vindication when I'm falsely accused? Peter says, no. You just take care of your conduct. Make sure that it is without reproach that when they speak against you as an evildoer, they may see good works coming from you. Now stop and think about this. They've been falsely accused. Some calling them thieves and murderers. And Peter merely recommends live honorably. So honorably, in fact, that those who falsely accuse you of murder see your good works and what? Convert to the faith. Win them over. Notice in blue up there. 
It says, that they may glorify God. These are non-Christians who are slandering the new Christians in Asia Minor. And Peter says, live in such a way that despite their allegations of murder toward you, your honorable conduct will lend them to believe in God. To glorify God in the day of visitation. That is the last day. The second coming, if you will. Friends, I submit to you that this is not a natural tendency of ours. This is not a natural tendency of ours. When I am falsely accused, the last thing on my mind is the spiritual status of my accuser. No, when I'm falsely accused, I think about me. I think about proving them wrong, perhaps. I think about personal vindication. But Peter says, no, it's not about you. It's not about validating your integrity. Peter says, when you're falsely accused... I don't want you to pity yourself. I want you to pity your accuser. When you're falsely accused, I don't want you to pity yourself. I want you to pity your accuser. I want you to experience sorrow concerning the darkness and the sin that that has overcome them. And when they slander you, I want you to bless them with a good work. And in so doing, pray that your honorable conduct will lead them to a saving knowledge of the truth. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5:16, "So let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven." Peter was sitting under the teaching of the master, and he's now recapitulating it for us. Though the word submit is nowhere to be found in verses 11 and 12, I submit to you that that's exactly what Peter has in mind. Peter, in essence, is urging them to subject themselves to one another for the greater good. And he's about to embark now on a three-part series in which subjection, submission plays out in everyday life. The first is with respect to government. The second is with respect to the slave-master relationship in the first century. And the third is with respect to the marriage. We're going to look at parts one and three. We looked at part two on Easter Sunday. Turn, if you will, now to verse 13. 2.13 says this, Therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors, as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. Now, Keep in mind, this is behind a backdrop of false accusations of stealing and murder. Behind that backdrop, knowing full well that his audience is receiving these false allegations, Peter says, it is so important now more than ever that you submit to the governing authorities around you because you are, they are receiving these accusations about you. A part of living honorably, Peter says, is to submit to your government. Whether to the king or to the governor, Peter urges them to defer to those in authority. Peter, like Paul, has really a high regard for the Roman system of law. He makes a reasonable statement that those in authority generally punish evildoers and praise those who do good. This is rather proverbial language, if you will. It's not always the case. But generally speaking, proverbially speaking, this is the case. In essence, Peter says to 
that the government serves the needs of the citizenry, and so the citizenry should respect the authority of the government. Why such a focus on government submission? In part, because they were receiving these false allegations. But on the other hand, there's something else that could be happening in this community. Some Christians may have had a subtle tendency toward disobedience or antagonistic behavior toward the Roman government. You say, well, why would that be? Why would Christians behave antagonistically or disobediently toward the Romans? It was often a misconception in early churches of this day that when you converted to Christ and in a sense made Christ your king, you no longer had to respect the authority of others in government. You say, well, how do we know that's true? Well, Peter, excuse me, Paul speaks about this in Romans 13. Also in Romans 6, 1 and 2, he talks about how some are saying because of the grace of God, because of the abundance of the grace of God in our lives, why don't we just sin all the more so that God's grace can be poured out more upon us? Paul says, no, that's absolutely ridiculous. Certainly we should not sin all the more just so that God's grace can abound. Peter desires to set the record straight. He says, despite your conversion to the true King of all creation, he tells them you must still show respect to your earthly authorities. Notice verse 15. He says this, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Now here Peter does offer a little bit of vindication, doesn't he? He says, by doing good, we what? Put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. What might have been that ignorance? What might have been that foolish talk of the men? Perhaps the false allegations? Peter's saying, if you want to rid yourselves of false allegations, of the foolish talk of ignorant men, he says, do good. Do good. Be upstanding. Be honorable. And you will put them to silence. He says, we're free. And when he says the word free in verse 16, he means to say, free from our past life. Free from our former ignorance in chapter 1, verse 14. We've been redeemed, chapter 1, verse 18, he says. We are freed from darkness, chapter 2, verse 9. Why would anyone desire to do evil with their freedom from condemnation? As I said, I submit to you this has been a problem with Christians, with many Christians in the first century. They thought in part that because of their new life in Christ, because Christ was their king, they didn't need to submit to the governing authorities. And Peter and Paul say no. That gives you all the more reason to do so. Paul indicates that the governing authorities have been put there by God Himself. Also read chapters 14 and 15 of Romans and you will find Paul suggesting time and time again that our freedom, our liberty in Jesus Christ is not grounds for doing whatever we please. Because we are free in Christ, we don't have a blank check to do whatever we want. 
Instead, Paul says in Romans 14 and 15, he says, instead, we are to defer to others, show honor to the weak. We are not to use our liberty as a pretext for evil. And that is precisely what Peter says in verse 16. He says, we're free as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak or a pretext or an excuse for vice or evil. But instead, we're to be bondservants of God. We are to exchange our freedom in Christ for a new enslavement to God. Enslavement to His ways. His purposes for our lives. When falsely accused, we're not to fight back, Peter says, but instead to live honorably, do good, and trust that the mouths of foolish men will be silenced by our good works, in particular by our submission to the governing authorities. In the next section, verses 18 to 25, which we covered on Easter, Peter's going to say, look who did this to the nth degree. Look who epitomized this. Jesus Christ. He suffered wrongly. And yet He lived honorably. And in so doing, shut the mouths of foolish men. And was vindicated by God. Jesus is our prime example, Peter says. And that's why he spends verses 18-25 to dealing with the fact that Jesus is the One to whom we are to fashion our lives around. That lifestyle of living honorably in the face of unjust accusation, unjust suffering. Verse 17, he sums it up, what he's been saying. Honor all people, Peter says. Love the brotherhood, in particular the church. Fear God and honor the King. Notice on the outsides of this four-part equation, it's their response to the world around them. Honor all people. Honor the King. And on the inside of this equation, it's the response within the community of faith. Love the brotherhood. Fear or show reverence toward God. Turning now to a new part of submission. To chapter 3. What we've seen in chapter 2 is we subject ourselves to others that they might be converted, that they might be one. We subject ourselves to government that we might be vindicated in the sense of having false allegations dropped to the side because of our honorable conduct. Now we turn to the marriage relationship. Chapter 3, verse 1. Take a look at what it says, verses 1 and 2. It says this, Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. Peter here is turning to this idea of submission in the marriage relationship. Now right off the bat, some of you are going to look at your Bibles and you're going to notice, well, wait a minute, Neil, there's verses 1 to 6, instruction to wives, and verse seven, only verse 7 is instruction to husbands. Now that's a little out of balance, don't you think? Actually, there's a really good reason why there's so much attention given to wives in this, in this epistle. The reason why Peter spends six verses directing comments toward wives is precisely because of this. In the first century, when a woman married a man, it was social custom. It was absolutely expected. It was completely within the norm for that woman to adopt 
the religious conviction of the husband. Absolutely within the norm. That's what happened 99% of the time. If she was to marry him, she was also to adopt his religious convictions, be they pagan, Christian, whatever they were. Thus, if a wife was a Christian and her husband was not, it was already assumed in her culture that she was not being submissive. Peter makes the assumption that many, many women were dealing with this issue. And thus we see the words, notice in verse 12, even if some do not obey. See, Peter knew full well that he was writing to many wives who in their culture's eyes had totally gone against the grain in converting to Christianity without their husband's consent or approval. They were subversive in the culture's eyes. These women, these wives, they were the ones that were out of the norm. If the husband converted slightly out of the norm because of the culture, but not as much because the husband would convert and the wife would follow. But if the wife converted and the husband hadn't, very unusual. Very different in that culture in the first century. And so Peter rightly devotes six verses to this issue. He says, I know this is important because I know the kind of verbal persecution you women are receiving. To these Christian women who wondered if their conversion to Christianity was subversive to their husband, Peter informed them that in fact their conversion, which would have been an affront to their pagan husband, was in fact perfectly in keeping with what God would want them to do. They were still able to submit to Him and yet not adopt his pagan religion. And to those Christian women who wondered, well, should I now submit to my non-Christian husband now that I have adopted the truth? Peter is clear still and says, yes, it is still God's desire. Though you have been subversive in your culture's eyes in adopting a new religion, it is still ideal in God's eyes that you Submit that you subject yourself to Him in all other matters. In all of this, Peter goes on to instill in them good reason for submission. And he says this, that they, notice in blue behind me, that they may be won by the conduct of their wives. That's the purpose. We subject ourselves to someone most often for the benefit of others for the benefit of others. Stop and recognize what Peter is saying here, though. Notice clearly, in a culture where it is commonplace for the wife to convert to her husband's religion, Peter suggests that now, now, in Christ, the wives can convert their husbands to the Christian faith. Friends, you and I can gloss over that. In that culture, in that day and age, when they picked up Peter's letter and read that point, that would have dropped their jaw. Completely out of the norm. A woman would never have anticipated that she could convert her husband to another faith in the first century. Notice the play on words. The word, word. It says in 
verse three, chapter 3, verse 1, that even if some do not obey the Word, that is, the Word of the Gospel or the Word of Truth, they, without a word, without a word from their wife, if you will, may be won by the conduct of their wives. Peter's using a word play on the word, word. Yet again, Peter suggests that personal vindication or watching out for one's own interests is not of interest to the believer in Jesus Christ. Instead, you and I are to earnestly seek the conversion of others by subjecting ourselves to them. Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. Remember how he said that in verse 12? That when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. What happens in chapter 2, verse 12 is precisely what's happening in chapter 3, verse 1. Peter offers the women some words of advice in order to engender their husband's conversion. He says this in verse 3, Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. And we need to also bring context to this. What does this mean? Does this mean we can't braid our hair or, or wear gold or fine apparel? In the first century, the kinds of women that adorned themselves with these kinds of descriptive, uh, th- this kind of adornment, if you will, were prostitutes. They were the ones involved in the cults of Isis and others. The women who adorned themselves in this fashion in the first century were ones that in that culture, by looking at them and seeing this kind of description, this kind of outward adornment, men would instinctively know this is a prostitute or this is a woman who is a cultist. So Peter rightly encourages them to avoid the appearance of being outwardly adorned like the cultists or the prostitutes. He says, instead, adorn yourself with something else. Let it be the hidden person of the heart that is your true inner self, your true inner person in Christ with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and a quiet spirit which is very precious in the sight of God. When the heart is filled with gentleness and a quiet disposition, Peter says, this Ladies, is precious before God. This is precious before God. It is not merely the outward adornment that will move your husbands toward conversion, if you will. But rather, it is the inward adornment of the heart. That is what gets the husband's attention. And he gives an example, verse 5. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trust in God also adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. This is an example for the first century. You and I may not resonate with this example as much because we're so far removed, but nevertheless, in that culture, Peter knew that this example would resonate well with them. He says, you are to submit to your husbands as the holy women of the Scriptures did. He doesn't identify who they were, but he, also, but he does identify one. While verse 5 indicates that they're in the plural, in verse 6 he isolates one woman, in particular Sarah, the wife of Abraham, who submitted to her husband. Interestingly enough, he cites that she called him Lord in Genesis chapter 18, verse 12. The word Lord there meant master or proprietor. 
maybe even landowner at times. Sarah was not ascribing divinity to Abraham. Instead, this, in this context, this word was a means of highest respect. Highest respect. Peter is urging the women, use similar words of high respect toward your husband. And in so doing, they may also convert to the faith that you have now adopted. You know, I, I, I want to pause and say I've seen this. I've seen this happen. My wife has a, a teacher uh, back in her elementary school days. Actually, probably high school days, right? Uh, who This woman was a Christian woman. Uh, she, when, they, when they married, they were not, not believers, but... Later on, she became a believer and she became a teacher in this Christian school to which Casey attended. And having married as non-Christians and then the wife converting to Christianity, I mean, we're looking at the same examples here, aren't we? But yet, this woman found it extremely difficult to encourage her husband to come to church, to maybe consider the Christian faith. She'd be praying for him. She'd be asking him to come, but yet he would not come. And she would freely say to you today, if she was speaking, that this is the kind of pattern she had began to adopt. A pattern of honorable living. A pattern pattern of a quiet and gentle spirit. A pattern of less words and more action. And believe it or not, after decades, decades of her husband not even considering the faith, He converted to Christianity not too long ago. Casey's teacher was just overjoyed. Decades of following this example that 1 Peter outlines, decades of doing that led to her husband being converted to the faith. What a joy. Friends, I'm telling you, that is a prime example today to you and I It can happen. If you are married to an unbelieving spouse, I urge you, live honorably before them. Wives, live honorably before your unbelieving husband. Show him respect, even in the times in which you perhaps may not feel he deserves any. The Scriptures say, show him respect. And in so doing, by your humble and gentle spirit, the Lord will be honored And your husband may be converted one day. Men, likewise. Although I think it's often less the case that a man is married to an unbelieving woman. That happens from time to time. And I urge you also, live honorably before your wife. As you're going to see in verse 7, show her respect. Show her honor. Treat her with dignity. And by your actions, not so much your words. By your actions, Peter says, you may open a door to her conversion. Peter says this at the end of verse 6. He says, As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. Whose daughters you are, that is to say, you are participating in the heritage of Sarah, if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. Why might Peter's female audience be fearful? 
Surely because their unbelieving husbands possessed good social grounds to divorce them or mistreat them for not adopting their religion. You see, these women were more than likely being abused. More than likely being abused by their pagan husbands as a result of not adopting their faith. And Peter says, don't fear. You will receive vindication. God will vindicate you in due time. You remain respectful as best you can. And in so doing, God will be honored and perhaps your husband will come to faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 7, Husbands, likewise, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. The word understanding there, let me pause just one moment. Let me back the train up one second. Um, I want to be clear. If, uh, if you are in, a, in an abusive relationship, I want to be clear that it is not, it is not wrong for you to get some help from that abusive relationship. I'm not suggesting that a woman is to simply be passive toward abuse. I want to be very clear. It is very probable that the women of the first century were being abused. And Peter is urging them to show respect, to show honor in the midst of the most difficult and trying of times. Yet there does come points in time where a husband must be called to account. And I urge you, if you are being abused by a husband, emotionally, physically, I want you to speak to me or the elders. And we would be more than happy to speak with your husband about that. So I want to be clear. Um, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting be, be passive recipients of that. Finally, verse 7. Husbands, likewise, dwell with them, your wives, with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. The, the word understanding there means wisdom or knowledge. Be wise in how you conduct yourself with your wife. Giving honor. Honor your wife. Show her respect, Peter says. As to a weaker vessel, this is most likely in, in terms of, of physical and in that culture, uh, a social status. The women were uh, considered lower than the men in the first century. They were not equals. And Peter says, rightly so, in the first century, they're the weaker vessel. And you are to show the weaker vessel honor. Paul suggests this in 1 Corinthians 12. We're to treat the weaker parts of our body with the greatest dignity. And he's applying that to the church. The people who are most weak in the church, who in a sense have the least to contribute, if you will, who are the most beaten down and downtrodden, they are the ones whom we are to show honor to and respect to. And a good reason for doing this, friends, look at the end of verse 7, that your prayers may not be hindered. This draws attention to what James had to say toward the end of his book. Righteous living leads to efficacious prayer. Righteous living, living honorably, leads to prayers that God pays special attention to. Finally, as we bring this to a close, we've looked at a lot. I want to summarize, consolidate, help you to see what we have seen here today. Look at this chart right behind me on the screen. This chart outlines where we've been today. It says this. On the left-hand side, we've got the command or the plea from Peter. And on the right-hand side, every time 
He gives a reason for the command or the plea. At the top, abstain from fleshly lusts and do good works. Why? That the Gentiles may glorify God one day. That your accusers may be converted and may turn their slander into glorification of God. Secondly, submit to government and do good. A good reason for doing so that man's ignorance may be silenced. That the false allegations being put toward you may be shut down. That you may be rightly vindicated before the governing authorities' eyes. Three, wives submit to husbands and have good conduct. Reason that even disobedient husbands may be won or converted. Four, wives adorn yourselves with inner beauties of gentleness and quietness. Why? This is precious in God's sight. And finally, husbands, show understanding to your wives. Show them respect and honor. Why? That your prayers may not be hindered. See, friends, Peter is not just haphazardly throwing these out here as traditions which, with, with which we are to uphold on a whim. He says there's good reason. There's good reason to put yourself into subjection to another for the common good, for the greater good, that souls might be saved. I want to leave us with a closing thought. The various duties and responsibilities given to Christians in Scripture are never without good reason. Let us embrace these duties not as obligations, but as opportunities to incur God's favor, mature in our faith, and win others to the Lord. We subject ourselves to others, but not only to others, for the benefit of others that they may be one. I urge you, in whatever relationships, whatever roles you play in your life today, there are areas in which you are going to find yourself in subjection, whether in your workplace, in your marriage. There are numerous different venues in our lives where we are in subjection to our government. I urge you to embrace that as an opportunity. It's not an obligation. It's not a duty. It's an opportunity for you to do good, and to bring glory to the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I pray even now that You would remind us, Lord, of the great opportunity that is before us when You ask us to be in subjection to others. Father, help us not to see it as a duty. Help us not to lay hold of what the culture how the culture views the idea of submission. Father, we know they view it negatively. They view it as inferior. But Lord, Your, your Scripture has told us very plainly today that when we subject ourselves to the government, when wives subject themselves to their husbands, Father, in these kinds of relationships, there is honor that is brought to You as a result of these good works and this honorable conduct. Father, help us to see the prospect for doing good and for bringing people to a saving knowledge of Your Son, Jesus Christ. May we put ourselves voluntarily in subjection to others that the common good may be accomplished. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.